Uh, if you didn't sign up last week, I'll also pass this around if you want. Although I'm not very good at sending out emails for the class, but if there are updates or things and you want to be on that list, sign up for that. So open up to James 2. We'll be going uh, closely through chapter 2 of James. As a uh, brief reminder, last week the kind of two takeaways I suggested was that James is inviting us to have a long-term perspective, not just a short-term perspective as he's calling us to be wise. And the other is uh, that we adopt something like a God's eye point of view. Not that we have this omniscient, omniscient all-seeing, uh, but that we're learning to, to think more in line with how God thinks. One author, Richard Hayes, uh, refers to it as a conversion of the imagination. Uh, that we're learning to kind of think and look at the world differently in a more godly kind of way. So we'll see how those two things show up. We also see how James 1 is preparing us for James 2 uh, in two ways. Uh, First, uh, in verse 22, he calls them to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. And he's going to pick that up in James 2 as he talks about faith without works. And at the end of James 1, uh, he talks about religion that is pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James 2 is going to pick up kind of on both of these ideas. One, uh, that we live out this faith. And two, that we take care of those in need and not show favoritism. Uh, So with that um, kind of uh, preliminary stuff, let's get into verse 1 of chapter 2. Um, I'll read this kind of my own translation because I don't like the NRSV here. Uh, My brothers and sisters, do not, with partiality, hold on to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory. In fact, so you can see how this flows, let me read 2, 1 through 13, uh, the whole section so you can see the argument, and then we'll take it uh, piece by piece. Verse 2, For if a person with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly... And if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so let's take this um, verse by verse. Uh, Going back to verse 1. I like how uh, this author says the main idea of this section... Here's how he or she, it's it's a co-authored book, so I never know who's writing. Christians must not discriminate either in favor of or against anyone because such behavior is inconsistent with God's choice of the poor, it's inconsistent with the present conduct of the rich, and it's inconsistent with the law of love. 
Instead, Christians must live in ways that anticipate the judgment day, demonstrating God's fairness to all and his grace to believers. So maybe that's the the broad idea, and we'll see how that gets worked out. So verse 1, who has something besides the NRSV? I want to hear how that gets translated. Yes. Yeah, will you read that, just verse 1? Okay, that's better than, than what's here. Uh, so what he's saying is don't hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with favoritism or with partiality. Um, and as he works that out, you can already see the, um, the beginnings kind of rooted there in verse 1 about why you can't show partiality uh, and hold on to this faith. Uh, one is he refers to Jesus as Lord or Master uh, and as Christ, who is Messiah, and he talks about him as glorious, or our, our Christ of glory, which is often referred a way of referring to God. So he kind of seems to be referring here to Jesus as Master, Messiah, and God. And they know, only living you know a few um, decades maybe after Christ's uh, death, they know how Jesus Christ lived among them. Who was their Master and their Lord and their God? But this humble, poor carpenter. How could they even begin as they hold on to the faith in this Master and Lord and Messiah and God? How can they even begin to show partiality when they know what Jesus was like? See how it's already, you can already see the inconsistency there. Uh, To hold on to this faith and who Jesus was and then to show partiality, particularly to um, dishonor, as he's going to say. How can you shame the poor when you know that your Messiah and Lord and God was poor among you? That's a non-starter. And he also calls them here brothers, uh, or brothers and sisters, if you have a more inclusive translation. And this is what Jesus did. He, he helped break down barriers. And you see this showing up uh, in the Gospels, and particularly in the rest of the New Testament, this language of brothers, or brothers and sisters, or I was like a father to you. Uh, what, what happens with this movement of the church is, is there's more of a familial kind of relationship between people. How can you, knowing what Jesus Christ has done and brought this kind of kinship among believers, begin to show partiality based on something as fleeting and as, um, as unsubstantial as wealth, or as he's going to say, clothes and jewelry. Are you that shallow in the faith that you're supposed to be holding on to, that you've forgotten who your Lord is, and you've forgotten what he's done to level things, make us brothers and sisters? In fact, we call him brother. Okay, so that's uh, kind of, if you slow down sometimes, you see this this really central theology that he almost takes for granted because he just flips through it in one, you know, one verse. But it is so foundational to what follows. So verse 2, uh, he explains how they're doing it in their context. A person with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly. Uh, the, the language there is actually into your synagogue. So maybe this is a, a Jewish group or maybe it's just a way of talking about the Christian assembly. It's, it's interesting. Uh, but anyway, a person with uh, the right clothes and the right uh, look comes into your assembly And we have a poor person with the wrong clothes who comes in. And if you take notice, verse 3, of the one wearing fine clothes and say, Have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, Stand there, sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So in the first century, uh, one of those markers of status, you're thinking status markers, uh, would be clothes. You kind of tell a person's status based on what they're wearing. Uh, And maybe on the opposite, if you're going to show someone favor or acceptance, whatever it might be, 
In the first century, one way of doing that is with seating. We don't pay that much attention to where we sit now. Uh, maybe, you know, at Thanksgiving, the patriarch will sit at the head of the table, but it doesn't mean much to us. But people would, would scramble for the proper seats. The closer you are to the front, the more important you look. And so if you remember Jesus' parable, uh, he says, you know, when you come to a banquet, don't sit up at the top. Instead, sit near the end. And then maybe someone will come along and say, sit up here. Why would they say that? Because it's a way of showing honor. So a way of showing honor or favoritism is through seating or a way of showing shame. No, no, don't sit here. You sit at my feet. So this is, this is kind of the first century context, yeah? Just before moving away from the clothes and status thing, I don't know if you're... Um, as, as we're reading that and talking about it, I'm thinking about... I know of people that have stopped coming to Otter Creek because they felt like they didn't make enough money. And that's, that doesn't necessarily say anything about people that attend here being judgmental mm-hmm. or showy or haughty or whatever um but what a shame you know like they they have children and their children are saying why why do all these other people have this stuff and you know it's just Mm -hmm. like um they didn't feel like they can compete so they went somewhere else where they there wasn't just so much yeah richness and i don't think that the answer is we should all come in you know ripped clothing and you know to look bad on purpose or anything, but I, I wonder if there's anything that can be done about that. And I don't know if it's like attitude or behavior, but it's just yeah. sad. Yeah, what we see, at least, I mean, in the first century church, it seems as though the wealthy definitely give more, and, it, and it's a way of, of showing some of those bonds. But it doesn't seem to be the first century was just simply about uniformity, even of culture. And so part of what, what I think the Christian church, when it's acting well, does is it, it brings that diversity and shows that we're still family. And so we don't all have to live the same or, or have the same income or whatever it is, but we still need to show acceptance. acceptance and welcome. And so sometimes in my class, what I'll have them do is say, okay, in the first century, you know, what are status markers? Or, you know, or first century status markers could be things like clothes or education or whatever. Uh, in the 21st century, let's update this so we can hear it now. And so... Uh, you can come up with your own list of whatever that might be, where you can look at someone and say, they seem by worldly standards important. And these are the kind of things that God doesn't care about. Uh, but we have these 21st century worldly standards by which we measure status. And it's going to have you know, some overlap. It will be things like clothes and possessions, if you know about their job or their access to power or whatever it is. And then we ask questions about uh, what are 21st century ways that we show favor and acceptance and welcome? Well, we don't do that with seating much. So, you know, we can pretty easily, if we don't slow down, be like, oh, I've never told anyone to sit at my feet. Uh, but do we have our own ways of showing you're welcome or you're unwelcome? And it's really interesting doing this with freshmen because their ways of showing welcome and acceptance are just completely off my radar. They talk about, you know, group text and, and, and following someone on Twitter. It's all social media. I'm like, you guys show acceptance through social media? Okay, that's not where I was going with this, but that's, you know, that's why you have to ask these questions because they have their own kind of language of acceptance. And, and so this is a, a language that's a little foreign to us, and so we think, what's it look like now? And so maybe this is getting some to your point. We need to be thinking, how would James call us uh, to think about how we show welcome uh, and acceptance uh, to those who don't fit the worldly status markers? Yeah? Better be all in or all out. Because if you're on the 
disgusting, and God will spit you out of his mouth. Yeah, he's going to get into, you got to take it seriously. Um, so we got to think about what that means to take it seriously in this context. I mean, it's, as he's going to say, you got to take all of it seriously. But he's highlighting this. So if we think about this, um, you know, what might this look like? You know what it feels like to be welcomed or to be unwelcomed when you walk into a place. Right? You know the kind of nonverbal uh, or the kind of social cues by which people say, we're glad you're here, or which they say, we kind of wish you didn't show up. And if we practice those, James is saying, look, you're not really holding on to this whole faith thing very well, this faith in this poor carpenter, Messiah, King, God of yours very well. You're still holding on to worldly standards. In fact, what he says is, verse five, 4, you've become judges with evil thoughts, or um, yours might say judges of evil. Uh, and, and what I think uh, this is bringing us back to is, is chapter 1. I mean, all this is connected. Chapter 1, if you're lacking wisdom, who do you ask? You ask God, because you want to think godly about these things, not evilly, if that could be an adverb here. Uh, don't be evil kind of discriminators. Instead, think godly about it. If you're thinking godly, you look at a, a, um, a list of status markers, you look at that and think, who cares? That's God's perspective on uh, wealth or clothes or power or occupation, those things that we often care too much about. We think, who cares? And then we think, uh, instead, how can we show love and acceptance and welcome? How can we, through our actions, say, you are our brothers and sisters? Because if we're thinking godly, verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, Here's how God thinks. Hasn't God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? So it sounds like James is picking up on the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hasn't he chosen the poor? If we're thinking godly and we see a poor person walk in, in fact, maybe we actually show them partiality. At the very least, because I don't know if that's where James is going, at the very least, we don't make them feel unwelcome. We treat them as we might our poor carpenter messiah. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? So the system uh, in that day, I mean, we still see this some. Even worse, let's say it's magnified, uh, where the rich got justice, they could kind of pay for justice. If you wanted to see a judge, uh, often the best way you could do that was by uh, bribing. You grease the wheel. So you can imagine if you want your... um, uh, you want your lawsuit or your case to be heard, and the way they have it heard is to bribe the judge. Whose side do you think the judge is going to side with? The one who bribed him, the one who got uh, it heard anyway. He's saying it's, it's the rich who are oppressing you, and yet you're showing them favoritism. Are you that stupid? Right? At least hold on to the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know what that means, but if not, at least don't side with the people who are the very ones oppressing you typically in that system. Verse 7, is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? Possibly this refers to maybe the name of Jesus spoken over them at baptism. Uh, In Acts 11, people are called Christians. Whatever it is, uh, they seem to uh, not be very uh, interested in in Christ, maybe shame Christ, and yet they are the ones being shown favoritism. So verse 1 through 7, James is is giving them a pretty hard time uh, because they're not seeing things properly. Verse 8, You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Uh, the language royal there could be also translated the law of the kingdom. We're kingdom people. So what's the main law of kingdom people? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's kind of um, foundational. That's, that's how we, we get moving. And if we're loving our neighbor as ourselves, we're not going to be uh, showing partiality. Uh, this, I think, brings us back to verse 1. How do you hold the faith of Jesus well? Well, you practice the royal law of Scripture, the kingdom law. You love neighbor as yourself. Uh, this love your neighbor as yourself, if you don't know, this comes from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself is Leviticus 19.18. So as James is pointing them back to Scripture, they're, they're not disconnected from the Old Testament. But what it seems as though is you've got the Old Testament kind of interpreted through uh, Jesus' teaching and the gospel. So you do well if you keep this royal law, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So maybe an interesting side note here. Leviticus 19.15, right before this is, don't show partiality. And then here you have that love neighbor commandment. It's like he's kind of calling them maybe to understand this in its proper context or understand this in its proper context. Either way, he seems to be pulling off uh, two Levitical scriptures, and most of us don't read Leviticus because it's so bizarre, myself included. Uh, But even James and Jesus saw something there uh, as though if we understood Torah well, we would see how it is pointing to those things. Uh, Does the Good Samaritan parable mean like it's that stuff right there? Yeah, actually, we're just about to get to that because, um, and where is it? When we get to verse 16, 15 and 16, we'll talk about how Jesus interprets the Good Samaritan in a way that James seems to be um, consistent with. Okay, verse 9, but if you show, or excuse me, 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Um, so this is not the same as saying, all sins are equal. Uh, what it seems in the Greek here, he's saying something like, if you're going to be those who keep this, um, the law, if you're going to keep the royal law of love your neighbor, uh, you've got to keep the other laws, not the other Torah laws, uh, but the other maybe uh, laws that Jesus points to, uh, the other Christian ideas. Uh, Christianity, holding on to the faith of Jesus Christ, is not a pick and choose kind of thing. You can't say, I'm going to uh, take this law, but I'm going to ignore this about loving my neighbor as myself. I think the language here is not you're guilty of it all, but you're accountable to it all. This isn't a pick and choose thing. You're all in. You hold the whole thing, uh, which is, I think, where he's going to then in verse 11. It's different from the rabbinic teaching that you could accumulate more debits than credits, or more credits than debits. Yeah. Yeah, for, and that wasn't, you know how Christianity is so diverse with our so many denominations. So that represents um, one part of, of kind of rabbinic Judaism or Judaism, but not all Jews thought um, in the, um, that kind of balance system. This is a metaphor that I've used to describe this. It's like if you think of a French door that has a bunch of separate window panes, and, and, oh, well, I just broke that one pane, so, you know, all these others are okay. Mm-hmm. It, it's just like one big sheet of glass. If one part of it's broken, the whole thing's 
yes, in, still. which is our state, you know, in need of Christ's. Yeah. So, um, verse 11, For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but if you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, uh, I like Luke Timothy Johnson's way of saying this. Um, he says something like, uh, if you're saying, yeah, I keep the Ten Commandments based on the fact that I don't kill, but I do commit adultery, that's ridiculous. You keep them all. Uh, this isn't a, a pick and choose, as I've said a few times. Um, which, which I think is helpful when we read Scripture, because there are things in Scripture which we like and we want to keep, and there are things that we read and we're like, hmm... I'm just going to kind of plug my ears and, you know, make some noises so I don't have to hear this because I don't want to keep that. But it's, uh, it's the whole deal. Uh, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. What a fascinating way of describing it. Um, maybe the law of liberty, again, is, is the law that, that Jesus teaches. Um, so he uses that language in Matthew. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a, that yoke language seems to be law language, and it's a freeing law in a sense, but it's still a law. And if he's calling us, if James is calling us to a long-term and to a godly perspective, we consider how we might be judged, although uh, we're kind of in an anti, we can't talk about judgment these days in, in evangelical Christianity, but there it is, nonetheless, we have to take seriously some sense of judgment. And he's speaking to Christians here, not to outsiders. And that makes me a little uncomfortable, but um, we still have to, uh, we can't sugarcoat some of this. So we take seriously judgment, and we take seriously that judgment might be according to the law of liberty, according to Jesus' teaching about how we live. That stuff matters. This is serious. This isn't uh, optional. As um, Dallas Willard says, discipleship isn't an optional thing. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. In the context, uh, what it means to show mercy and not show mercy shows up in the way they are uh, treating uh, the poor. So maybe he's saying something like, hey, the way you treat the poor might be how you're treated. You judging them with evil thoughts. Remember back in verse 5? Would you like to be judged that way? (laughs) God help me. right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the last line there in verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That can mean two things. One, even in our brokenness, even as much as we screw up, there will still be mercy. I think that's one piece of this. But the other piece is, uh, and this is how um, some of the early Christian uh, uh, fathers took it, by showing mercy, you kind of save yourself from the harsher aspects of judgment. And that fits the context here. Uh, so you could point to something like the rich man and Lazarus parable, right? Lazarus, poor Lazarus, was sitting out there cast uh, outside the rich man's gate, and he, the rich man ignored him, uh, and then he comes to torment, and he says, Abraham, Abraham, send Lazarus over here to dip you know, his finger in water and cool my tongue. And he says, you had your good things, and you didn't share them with Lazarus. Maybe... One way of reading this, mercy triumphs over judgment, is that we need to be merciful because, verse 12, uh, we recognize we'll be judged by the law of freedom. All right, that's some feel-good stuff there. Now, um, 14, I'm going to read the whole section again, 14 through 26. I don't want you to see this, though, 
as just a, a whole separate argument. 14 through 26 is like the second piece, uh, the follow-up argument to what just happened in verse 1 through 13. But it, it flows together well. Uh, so as he's calling them to have um, faith that shows itself in deeds, what he seems to have in mind is particularly faith that has the kind of deeds that care for the poor. Uh, that's where it fits the context here. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works or do not have deeds? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you don't supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. All right, so verse 14, if we head back and kind of break this down. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't have works? Uh, There's been some confusion and some people like to uh, pit James and Paul against one another. Doesn't, you know, Paul say you're saved by faith apart from works and here James is saying faith without works is dead. Um, I think a, a distinction that's helpful to make when Paul talks about works, he's primarily you came into mine and George Goldman's class and Lee Camps. We talked about this more, uh, especially when we went over Galatians. But Paul seems mainly to be talking about works of Torah. So if you've read Galatians uh, and people are trying to, um, uh, you have this group, it's called Judaizers. That's kind of how they're referred to. They're coming in and they're telling them you've got to be circumcised and you've got to follow a particular diet. Uh, this are kind of works of Torah. It's like a way of saying you're not fully in until you're part of the Jewish community. Which, you know, you kind of make sense. You've got a Jewish Messiah. Don't you have to keep all these laws that we've been keeping for all these generations that are really uh, uh, tiresome? Uh, and what Paul says is absolutely not. Gentiles get in, uh, and they get in uh, as Gentiles, not by converting to Judaism. You are saved by faith apart from becoming a Jew. It's kind of Paul's language. You're saved by faith without works. Does that make some sense? Whereas what James seems to be talking about in context is good deeds, and in this context, it's especially on behalf of the poor. So they're, they're already kind of talking about different things here. Paul's saying, you don't have to become a Jew. James is saying, you've got to have the kind of faith that actually shows up in your life, that shows up in keeping the law of liberty, the kind of faith that reflects Jesus' teachings. 
Uh, and in this sense, Paul and James, I don't think, are on opposite pages. If uh, I think it's Galatians 5, 6, I believe, uh, if you want to see how these... Yes, Galatians 5, 6. What Paul will say, Galatians 5, 6, what matters is faith working through love. So Paul seems to see faith uh, and works going together. Not faith and Torah, works of Torah, but faith and good deeds. What matters is faith working through love. Sounds a lot like James. Faith without deeds, particularly these kind of loving deeds to the poor, is dead. So Paul and James are not, not intention. They're just really unhelpfully using the same language to talk about different things. Um, and another way of maybe making a distinction to add to this is Paul, you might say, is talking some pre-conversion. Yes, you're not saved by doing enough good works. It's, it's by grace. You're saved by grace through faith. Uh, and James might be talking something more post-conversion as well. And again, James and Paul... James and Paul in Ephesians 2.10 says, because of our salvation, we're created for good works. Yes, yeah, absolutely. post Yeah, yeah, so Paul and James aren't on opposite pages. They're just talking about different things with the same language. So would Paul say um, that your faith needs to have works or good deeds? Yes. Uh, and I think James would agree with Paul you don't have to become a Jew. So uh, hopefully this clarifies some about how Paul uh, and James maybe seem to be, uh, or have been, been put at odds, but they're not actually at odds. You can't read Paul closely and think that he doesn't care about how you live. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing in Churches of Christ, uh, because Churches of Christ, I feel like, only, you know, maybe historically, lately have really gotten the message of grace, which is great. But as pendulum swing, what has happened or can happen is that the message of grace becomes not, okay, I'm saved by what Jesus has done, not because I deserve, not because I've done enough. You know, I don't have to live in this kind of anxiety. But then that becomes swinging all the way over to, hey, I'm saved by grace. It doesn't matter what I do. Deeds don't matter. And so, you know, kind of the healthy, mature perspective is to realize, yes, we are saved you know, this kind of pre-thing, not by our deeds, not by works of law, not by anything else. We're saved by grace through faith. But living, saving faith is going to show itself in discipleship, in good deeds. Uh, so that's, the, I think, the mature or the wise perspective that James is calling us to. Before I kind of unpack that more in James 2, is the, is the tension there between Paul and James making sense? Okay? There's another thing that when you say, well, we're not, we're not saved by works of Torah, that it's easy for Christians to then conclude, okay, so just throw that out. Whereas God put a lot of that stuff in there because it was good for us, mm-hmm. and it made our lives better, and it helped us to grow. And so even if we're not held to a certain standard, doing something like keeping Sabbath is is only beneficial to us. And no, it's not an obligation, um, or, you know, maybe not, but even though it's one of the Ten Commandments. But, you know, people think, so don't, just ignore that stuff. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter to us. It doesn't apply. Yeah. Which I think was... Yeah, when Jesus says, all along the prophets hang on love of God and love of neighbor, he's, I think, showing us Torah was meant to be something that promoted love of God and love of neighbor. 
uh, and it gets distorted like we do with all good things. We take that which is meant for good and we distort it. Uh, that's kind of part of the problem with sin. Um, uh, one way I was thinking about this uh, earlier, because we have a tendency to only think of the law as bad uh, because of how it can be so distorted, but I think that just shows how good it had the potential to be. It's like family, right? Family, when it's healthy and working well, can be the most life-giving thing. But a dysfunctional and abusive or whatever kind of family system can also be one of the worst things. So what we do is not say, well, let's get rid of family. Uh, Family must be inherently bad. But we realize that something that is so uh, potentially good can also be so potentially bad. The law was so potentially wonderful, but when distorted and corrupted, can also become uh, so life-sucking. Okay, so let's see, I've got about five minutes to go quickly through this. Uh, Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't have, uh, I'll say, deeds? Can faith save you? Uh, The Greek language there has this word may, um, opening it up. When may opens up a question, the answer is no. It's a way of saying, you know the answer, it's no. Uh, So another way of interpreting is, such a faith can't save you, can it? And the audience obviously has to say, no. Uh, If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, uh, and yet you don't supply their bodily needs, what's the good of that? So faith by itself, it has no works, is dead. Uh, So this is, uh, if when Jesus was asked about um, greatest commandments, the lawyer comes up to him, and and, uh, Jesus says, What's in the law? And the guy says, Love your neighbor as yourself, and love God. And Jesus says, Okay. And the guy wants to justify himself, and so he says, Who is my neighbor? And then he tells the story about a guy in need and about who helps him. Very interestingly here, uh, when James is talking about uh, this commandment to love your neighbor, it shows up in helping one who is in need. That's what living faith, that's what saving faith looks like. You help the one in need. Uh, verse 14 and verse 16 both have this line. It's identical in Greek. Uh, what good is it? Or what's the benefit? So maybe one way of seeing this, verse 14, what good is it to have faith without works? We might be able to read that as it's just about as good as telling someone uh, to be warm and well-fed and not helping them. How helpful is your faith without works? It's going to be about as helpful as it would be to someone if you tell them be warm and well-fed and you don't give them anything. It's not a very positive view of a workless faith. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. 18 is really hard to uh, interpret. Some of you are going to have different interpretations. We won't get into that. I'll just say that uh, ancient Greek had no quotation marks. So we have to kind of guess when James is, is, um, is kind of putting words into the mouth of someone else, where that begins and where that ends. Uh, if that made no sense, just ignore it. Focus on what does make sense. Um, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Uh, so uh, two greatest commandments that Jesus talks about. Love God and love neighbor. In fact, the Shema was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So James is seeming here to point to that first great law. You believe that God is one. This is the Shema. Big deal. It's not about just professing this. The demons know that God is one. The point isn't just to know it. The point of being wise, the point of looking ahead and being judged by the law of liberty is to live accordingly. The demons don't do that because they're fools. Uh, But you should be wiser than that. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you senseless person? I think this translation is putting it nicely. That faith apart from works is barren. Uh, He has a play on words here. Um, 
uh, works is erga, uh, barren or ineffective is uh, arga. So he's saying uh, you want to be shown that uh, not having works is ineffective or unworkful, maybe. Um, Do you want to be shown? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified uh, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. All right, translation gets really difficult here. Uh, I agree for the most part. Yours either says something like, wasn't Abraham justified? Um, I think, given the conversation, an equally good translation was, wasn't he shown to be righteous? After all, this is back in verse 18 or 19. He says, show me your faith uh, by your works. Um, I think this is a better translation because the point is, is, is you're kind of showing your faith. So, in, so you can maybe see this. In Genesis 15, this is when Abraham uh, was uh, shown to be righteous or justified. His faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Faith reckoned as righteousness. Okay, Genesis 15, faith reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 22, this is the sacrifice of Isaac. So, what he said, all the way back up here, his faith was reckoned as righteousness. And here is where um, James is pointing to say, uh, this is how you know that faith without works is dead. And so what he's going to say is this, all the way seven chapters earlier, is fulfilled or made complete. So is Abraham reckoned as righteous with faith? Yes, but that faith is fulfilled. It's completed. It's brought to more of a fuller place uh, because he lives out that faith. Uh, James sees faith apparently as as kind of a a growing, um, a deepening Kind of thing. All the way back in chapter 1, maybe verse 4, um, if you're going through trials, let, let that have its work so that your faith might be completed. Right? Your faith is, is growing, it's maturing, it's an expanding thing. And so, what was spoken in 15 finds its completion or its fulfillment as Abraham lives this out. And I think this is where James is calling us to live out this faith. You have a living, or you should have a living and active faith, just as. Uh, Abraham did. Uh, There is so much here. Um, uh, Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and his faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus, scripture was fulfilled. So I got some of that language. What I want you to see in verse 22 is faith was working with works. Uh, The language working with uh, is synergy. Soon ergomai, or soon ergo. Uh, they're working together. Faith and works for James, they're married. They work together. This is, these aren't separate things when it's properly understood. Uh, so it's, he says something like, this word means works. Works. And this is with. So he said his works were working with his faith. There is synergy between his faith 
and his works. This is what living faith is. Uh, faith without works is not living, it is dead. So Abraham believed. Um, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? Um, so we have someone uh, in such high esteem as Abraham, and then one who seems to be in low esteem, an outsider, a prostitute, and yet she too shows by her works. So verse 26, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Uh, maybe, I think the point is maybe understood pretty well here. Uh, so let me close with two things. First John so we can see this continuity. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 is one way of saying, another way of saying this. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Paul says what matters is faith working in love. James says faith without deeds, in particular it seems to be deeds for the poor, is dead or useless. And John says if you really have the love of God in you, uh, do more than just say love, but act out that love. This is what saving faith looks like. All right, I think I went a couple minutes over and I still had about an hour of stuff I could have said. Uh, Okay, James 3 for next week. Uh, If you have questions, come on up.